We're in, a, we're in the middle of a series, and I never do well in series that aren't um, uh, from a biblical book because I, I just feel I don't know where to stop. I don't know what to include, what to exclude. Um, but we're doing a, a little series, if you're visiting with us today, um, uh, called God is Real. That changes everything. And it is something that we hope will frame our thinking for uh, the next number of months and maybe even years to come. And we're drawing out the implications of that for our life. And so for the first two weeks of the series, uh, back in early September, we just opened up the, 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 the statement, God is real. And uh, we unpacked that a bit and said, well, how do we know God is real? And uh, the first message was on some of the existential reasons um, how we know God is real. Morality, the image of God in us, uh, a few of those. Uh, and then the, the second week, we um, talked about some of the more concrete, external ways in which we know God is real. And uh, in that uh, time, we unpacked revelation, how God reveals himself to us. He's made himself known. He's not hidden. And, um, and then the third week, we spent a little bit of time uh, then uh, on the last part of that phrase, um, and that changes everything. And uh, last week, we added the little um, tagline, that changes everything for everyone. Because whether or not you accept the reality of God or not, it changes everything about your life. The fact that God exists um, uh, changes uh, your life, impacts your life. And so we spent some time talking a little bit about that. Um, this morning I want to talk uh, about how it changes everything for the believer. And whether or not this makes sense to you, it makes sense to me. And uh, I've been wrestling through this um, for a little while and uh, trying to think, well, how does this summarize in my own life? How does this impact in my own life? And I think one of the things that I've come to understand in, in such a profound way that the reality of God is most well-known or understood through creation. Um, that in the beginning, God created. He created this whole world and everything that exists. And rooted in that reality, that act of God, uh, then we can flow from that and realize if, if God is the creator of this world, this universe, and everything in it, then that does change everything. And I was reading uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, and there... Uh, one of the many, many biblical writers uh, responded this way, simply said, You are Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And that goes for you and I as well, that God preserves us, guides us, he's made us, he's created us. And so, as I say, I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about, well, how then does the reality of God change everything for those who believe in his existence? And so I was reading a particular psalm, and actually, uh, Lori read it uh, this morning, Psalm 73. I was reading this two or three weeks ago, and this one phrase struck me. It's near the end of the psalm, and I'll, I will take a couple minutes to give you the context of the psalm. But there was one phrase that struck me. And I've been thinking about it for a little while and trying to understand it, trying to fill it out a bit. And in, in Psalm 73, at the end of a, a, a time of discouragement and then a time of revelation, Asaph, who is the writer of the psalm, writes these words, starting at verse 23. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. It's that phrase, that last phrase, that last sentence, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
And I thought in my head, well, is that realistic? Is, is, is that something that is actually even possible? Is it practical for you and I to conclude that there is nothing on earth that we desire more than God? Can the reality of God be so big that every other desire, save the desire to know him, to find him, to live in his life, disappears? There is nothing on earth that he desire apart from you. You see, Asaph's in trouble here. Um, uh, before he gets to that conclusion, uh, the first part of the psalm uh, tells us how his foot almost slipped. And by that he means how his way of life, his walk with God almost slipped. And the problem was but, that he was focusing on earthly things that weren't God. He was focusing on the wicked. Now the wicked often in the scripture don't mean what we would think by wicked, evil people. Uh, the wicked are simply those who deny the existence of God. Those who live as though there is no God, as though they are not accountable to any God. And so he says, my foot almost slipped because I started to envy the wicked. It's not really their wickedness that he was envying. Rather, it was the kind of life that they lived. As he looked at their life, he says, man, that, that looks like a pretty good life. He says, they are healthy. They've got fat on their bones. They live out all of their years sort of in safety and security. They have wonderful families. They are prosperous. They, they have influence over a lot of people. They have an easy time of it until they die full of years. And Asaph reflected on that. He says, well, what good can come from my life? I feel like I'm punished every day. I, I feel like it's hopeless. I, and even we find that he was embittered against God. He was angry at God for the course of his life. And so I think what was happening was his desires were shifting from God to things that were found in the world around him. And I have really appreciated his, his honesty. I don't know if any of us would really feel comfortable sitting down with a friend of ours at coffee and saying, you know, I need to talk to you. I have been mad at God, and I'm looking at people around me, and it really bugs me that they seem to have everything together. They have wonderful families. They have great health. They go on great vacations, and I'm ticked off about this. And yet that's what Asaph does as he opens up this psalm to us. He's exposing some of his own desires, his desire for health, his desire for money, his desire for a long life, his desire even to be free from any kind of accountability. But what had happened was his vision had become impaired. He had, he had almost become myopic. Well, he had become myopic in his vision. He couldn't focus on things far away. He could only focus on things nearby. And he was in trouble. It says, until... He came into the house of God. Until he came into the presence of God and his vision was corrected, he, had a, he received a, a sort of a, a reminder, a wake-up call that the earth is not all there is, that temporal matters is, are not the only things that matters, that in fact there are spiritual realities that are so much more important than temporal realities. And clearly he confesses his sin and he declares again his loyalty to God. And as much as he as much says, the only thing that matters after going through all of this, after wrestling through all of this, after fighting you, God, after being angry at my own desires, he says, now I realize the only thing that matters is you, God. 
In other words, it's a confession that the reality of God changed everything for his life, that it would become the singular desire of him. And he says, and nothing on earth I desire except for you. So I've been wrestling with that. And I've been working that out in my own life. Is it possible to live in such a way that your only desire is God? Doesn't that mean that everything else falls aside, that everything else gets neglected? Or is that singular desire consume and, and bring everything else into its wake? And I think it's the second. And I thought of three ways in which that singular desire is motivated, is cultivated. And it's the kingdom of God, the fear of God, and the glory of God. This massively encompassing realities in Scripture, woven all through the Scriptures. So, so the first one is simply, what, what concerns me? What, what concerns me in life? And it's the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 33, it's a very familiar portion of Scripture about anxiety and about worry. And Jesus there is talking to his disciples, and he's talking to them about, about those realities in their life. And he uses the, the, the sort of bare necessities of life to point out that anxiety and worry should not overwhelm us. And then he, he says, after talking about it, he says this. He says, for all the nations of the world, all those who acknowledge there is no God, all the nations of the world seek after these things. What things? Food and clothing, the, the bare necessities of life. He says, but your father knows that you need them. Instead, so instead of being consumed about what am I going to eat and what am I going to wear, the basic realities of life, instead, seek his kingdom. And all of these things will be added to you. So Jesus says to them, don't worry about your life. What you will eat. Don't worry about your body what you will wear. See, again, these are the nuts and bolts issues of life. It's his way of saying that you don't have to worry about anything, not even the basics. But these have often tended to consume a lot of our mental and physical energies. So Jesus takes it and he puts it in a broader category. He says, life is more than food. And the body is more than clothing. This is really significant because even if you have a full fridge and pantry or you find that your walk-in closet is too small, there's more to life than those basic necessities. And then he illustrates it this way. He says, look at the ravens. We might say, look at the crows. Same kind of thing. Um, they're equally obnoxious when you're camping. <laughs> but he says, the ravens don't sow and reap. They don't have little plots of ground on the mountain or in the back uh, 40 where they plant little seeds and stuff. And he says, they don't even have storerooms or barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than the ravens? It's a wonderful sort of kind of shaking them a little bit and said, listen, God cares for his creation. It matters to him. He doesn't just create it, then leave it to fend for himself. If God made it, he will look after it. If God made it, he will care for it. God created you and I. He will care for us. He will give us what we need to eat. He will give us what we need to wear. That's a given. Don't worry about it. And then he says, 
Consider the wild flowers. Wild flowers are, are, are amazing. You see them along the highways sometimes. You go for a hike in the meadows and you see these incredible meadows, um, uh, mountain meadows that are just full of these wild flowers. They don't do anything. They don't have walk-in petal closets that they go and change their petals every sort of other day so they get a new kind of look about them. But he says, look at the splendor with which God has made them. Many of you paint them. You're, you're just so overwhelmed by the beauty of even wild flowers that you paint them in vases or you paint them in fields. Others of you go and take pictures of them because you, you want to try and capture their incredible beauty. And Jesus says, if God cares so much for a wild flower and he clothes it with such incredible beauty and that is here today and gone tomorrow, will he not more clothe you? So he says, but seek first his kingdom. Leave that stuff to God. He's made you. He's created you. He will not leave you alone. Rather, seek his kingdom. Do you see how that changes the way that we live and our desires? So what we do is we wake up in the morning and say, God, I know you've got my daily needs in hand. So help me to seek spiritual realities and not worry about food and clothing and those basic things around me. Seek his kingdom. What's the kingdom of God in, in a nutshell? Well, it's his reign and his rule. It's the reality that God is over this world. He sits on the throne of heaven and he looks down on the earth and all the inhabitants of the earth. We see the, the theme of the kingdom of God and the reign of God worked out through the Bible. Some of the, the most um, um, helpful realities of the kingdom of God are in Daniel chapter 4 and in Daniel chapter 7. And then you move to the New Testament and you find that Jesus is called the king of kings and the ruler of all things. And at the end of this age in which you and I are living, it says the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our God and he will reign forever and ever. But that kingdom of God is not just a future reality, it's a present reality. And Jesus says it's right now here, it's in. You and I are in children of God. Those of us who have been born again, we are already now part of that kingdom. And when we become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, it says we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the reign and rule of Satan, into the kingdom of his beloved son, the reign and rule of Jesus. J.I. Packer summed it up so beautifully. He put it this way. He says, the task of the church, that's you and I, those of us who are followers of Jesus, the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and witness bearing. That's a profound sort of summary of the kingdom of God. That you and I are subject of an invisible kingdom right now. We serve a God who exists, the king of this world who sits on his throne, but is behind a veil, so to speak, right now. And there's laws in that kingdom. There's ways that we're taught. There's ways that we think. There's ways that we're supposed to act. And that as we act that way, as we live that out in the world around us, the invisible kingdom of God will become real as they look at our marriages, as they look at the way we do our jobs, as they look at the things we do for entertainment as they look at the kind of structures that guide our lives. And they will see that invisible kingdom of God ooze out of everything that we do in life. And so we'll pray for its expansion. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We embrace its king. We, we worship King Jesus, so to speak. We submit to him. We follow him. We, we obey his rule. We live out the reality of God's kingdom ways in our life. We see it in the Old Testament in the Ten Commandments. We see it in the New Testament as the Ten Commandments are expanded and exposed through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And so the kingdom of God is to be our priority. This should be our concern, loved ones. Not what we eat, not what we wear, but the kingdom of God. And all of those things will be given to us by virtue of the fact that we're simply God's children. And so I think this is what it means in the first place to profess there is nothing I desire on earth but you. I want your kingdom. I want it to be worked out in my life. I want to become a faithful servant in your kingdom. I want to trust your care and provision for my earthly realities. That's, loved ones, I think what it means to say there is nothing I desire on earth but you. To seek first the kingdom of God. The second way that I see it worked out in my own life and have been trying to summarize it again is by what constrains me. The first is what concerns me. I shouldn't be concerned about what I eat and what I wear. I should be concerned about the kingdom of God. Well, what constrains me? Well, what constrains me, and this is something that's also woven throughout the Bible, is a fear of God. It's, this is a hard thing to wrap our heads around, and I probably won't, be, well, I won't be able to do it in, in five or ten minutes this morning. Just to sort of drop you into a few things about what the fear of God might look like and how you'll understand it, it invades every part of your life. Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In another place, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Why do we fear God? On, a, on, a, on just a basic level, we fear him because he created us. He owns us. He guides us. He has authority over us. And so we, we fear him simply because of his power and his might and his wisdom and his glory and his grace and his holiness and his purity and his mercy and his love. It's the theological foundation of our life. And this is a big word, and I don't know if, if I'll be able to say it. I know what it means. It's the epistemological foundation of our life. All knowledge and wisdom flows from God. One way to understand the fear of God, and I, I think we can all understand it this way, and I'm a little bit um, hesitant to use this, but I think we get it. The fear of man brings a snare. I don't think there's a person in this room today that can say, I have never lived in the fear of man. Whether you're 12 years old or whether you're 98 years old. You know what the fear of man is. What will they think if I wear this? I don't want to offend them. I, I want to be in the in crowd. I, uh, am I wearing the right clothes? Um, what if I do this and will my job be at stake if I make this decision and not that decision? I don't have the right shoes. What are they going to think if I don't wear these shoes? 
What are they going to think about me a new hairdo? Are they going to like it or are they not? Like, you see the fear of man in social media just exploded. And so the, the fear of man is, is something that shapes us. It, 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 it controls our behaviors. As I say, what we wear, how we talk, where we go, what we don't do, who we are friends with, who we're not friends with. In a much greater way then, the fear of God ought to shape us. The, the fear of God is what molds us. Our, our, our sole concern should be God and what he thinks of us. Is this pleasing to you, O Lord? Is this in imitation of you, O Lord? Does this grieve your spirit, Father? Does this put a smile on your face as we live in light of the audience of one? And so we think about the fear of God as his influence on our actions and our behaviors. It's, 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 it's invasive, so to speak. It's the context in which we live our lives. What the alphabet is to reading, and what notes are to reading music, and what numerals are to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is what it is to attaining wisdom and understanding. Solomon writes this. He, he says, fear the Lord always. It's not just fear the Lord when you go to church, or fear the Lord when you're with your Christian brothers or sisters, or fear the Lord when you're with your friends. It's fear the Lord when you're by yourselves. It's fear the Lord when you're watching TV. It's fear the Lord when you're driving. It's fear the Lord when you're hiking. It's fear the Lord always. It's always a reality that constrains our lives. There's, there's not a second in our life when this fear of the Lord, the awareness of the Lord, is not compelling. He says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I think in part what that means is that the fear of the Lord helps us use knowledge. Because as we all know, knowledge can be used, the same knowledge can be used for good or for evil. And so it's the fear of the Lord that helps us not only to acquire knowledge, but to use knowledge in the right way. Say, for instance, you have two doctors. They both have the same education, the same skill, the same experience, so to speak. There's, there's no discernible difference between the two doctors and their knowledge level. One uses her knowledge and expertise to serve God by serving people. The other has no fear of the Lord and uses their knowledge to invade the womb or to take a life in its final years. It's the fear of the Lord that gives perspective. It's the fear of the Lord that helps us to use knowledge correctly. fear of the Lord that determines our fundamental outlook on life. I was thinking of the fear of the Lord and knowledge, the ability to, to use things and to make things and to create things. I was thinking about this, if you were to get a team of engineers and you say to these team of engineers, I want you to de design a pump with these specifications. I want this pump to have a 75 year life expectancy. It's going to have 2 trillion, 500 million cycles. It will require no maintenance or lubrication. 
It will have an output varying between 0.025 horsepower and short bursts of one horsepower. It is not gonna, it, it cannot weigh more than 10.5 ounces or 300 grams. It needs to have the capacity to pump 2,000 gallons per day. And its valves need to be able to open four to 5,000 times per hour. Ought we not to learn from the one who has created the heart and has such knowledge? It's also moral knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of moral knowledge. Moses writes that uh, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules of the Lord, that the Lord commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. The fear of the Lord gives us the ability to use knowledge properly. The fear of the Lord helps us understand more, the moral context of our life. The fear of the Lord is also wisdom. I, I, I wish I understood this to a greater extent, and I, I wish that I understood this when I was younger. But Daniel summarizes the, the progress of the, 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 the young captives who had been in Nebuchadnezzar's court for two years. And at the end of it, he says, as for these four youths, listen to this, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had all understanding of visions and dreams. Do you understand what, what Daniel is saying? God knows all of that. It's his world. He created literature. He understood the guys who wrote the literature. He is the one that knows, that knows all things. He knows why the stars move the way they do. He knows why plants grow the way they do. And so as we come to God, as we submit to God, as we live in our lives in the acknowledgement of God, that wisdom of God is a profound influence on our understanding of the world that he has made. In the building of the tabernacle, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was made with gold and silver and bronze. It was made of por porpoise skins. It had all kinds of precious stones and all of this, uh, um, uh, all kinds of weavings. This is what Moses said. The Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft, to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine twisted linen or by a weaver or any sort of workman or skilled designer. I think that's part of what it means to fear the Lord. This is his world. He's created everything in it, all the materials in the world. And we can go to him and say, God, would you give me wisdom on how to use this properly? One other account of that. We see it in, in, in such a different way. The queen of Sheba came to Solomon. She had heard his reputation of being a really wise man. And we remember, right, that it was God who gave Solomon wisdom. And so it says, And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. I, I would have loved to have been part of that session. 
I'm sure it just ranged over every possible topic that it could have ranged over. And it said, And when the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her mouth. That means she was breathless. <gasps> As she saw the wisdom of God worked out in the day-to-day -day realities of his life. Food, table settings, construction of his palace, the way he offered burnt offerings, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Of Jesus, it is said in Isaiah that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. It's not something to be afraid of, loved ones. This is something to embrace. It's something to delight in. See, if you address his father, him who judges without favoritism according to each individual needs, live out the time of your exile here in reverent awe. As we live our lives, that's what we're to, to do, is live out our time here in reverent awe of God. And then finally, this one, it just, it, it, it drives home the pervasiveness of God's influence in our life. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Not this is the partial duty of man, or, or this is good for, you know, um, when you're working. This is the whole duty of man. Men and women, boys and girls of all ages, that is our consuming passion, to fear the Lord. So I think, again, this is what it means to profess there is nothing I desire on earth but you. So it impacts what we consider it impacts what constrains us. And the final thing is it impacts what motivates me. This is another comprehensive statement that I, I, I can't wrap my head around. And again, I've just been trying to figure it out, wrestle with it, wrestle it to the ground in my own life. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Is it not obvious from that that God is real, it changes everything? This is the central message of the Bible for all believers throughout all ages. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, part of that comes from, again, I don't want to beat a drum that I ought not to beat, but in the beginning, God created. That is, the, that is the thing that the Bible holds up to us to give us a sense of the power, the might, the glory, the majesty of God. God created us to glorify him. Some of you are familiar with the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, and the first question. Most of us don't know the second question, but we do know the first question. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The highest purpose that any created human being can attain 
is to be totally absorbed with the desire to live to the glory of God. So again, do you see then how the existence of God changes everything? There's an intrinsic glory to God that we can add nothing to, take anything away. I hope you understand that. That in his being, there is an inherent glory that is full and complete and exhaustive. You can't add anything to it. You can't make God more glorious. And you can't take anything away from the God from God's glory. He is glorious. But what we can do is we can ascribe to God glory. There's various ways that the Bible tells us. It seems to say, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. That means give him glory. Well, how do we give him glory? In everything that we do, we honor his influence in our life. So we don't give glory to God in the sense that we fill him up or we add anything to it, but we give glory to God in the sense that we acknowledge who he is and his power and his might. It's all things. In everything that you do, glorify God. We can't compartmentalize our lives. You can't say, well, you know, in, 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 in my work life, I'll, I'll try and glorify God. Or in my sort of spiritual life, I'll try and glorify God. But when I'm with my friends or, you know, when I'm doing this particular hobby or when I'm engaged in this, you know, I'm really not going to think about God and, and I really don't care about God's awareness of what I do in that. The Bible doesn't allow that. There's no wiggle room. There's everything in our lives ought to be run through the grid of the glory of God. You see, Paul takes us back to what we might think are the most mundane things in life. Have you ever thought about eating to the glory of God? Does it sound stupid? I can think of a number of ways where our eating can glorify God or can dishonor God. Have you ever thought about drinking to the glory of God? We're not just talking about alcohol here. Just coffee, tea, water, pop. Paul's point is that everything we do ought to be done in a way that glorifies God. And that's what he says, whether eating or drinking, everything that you do ought to be done to glorify God. See, the Old Testament, it says that our glorifying God is not just in our moral lives or our religious lives. God influenced their calendar, their diet, their politics, their economics, their law, their marriage, their divorce, their sexuality, their war, the way they warred, and so much more. You ever think about your marriage, that the way you treat your husband or wife is meant to bring glory to God? The way you discipline your children or guide your children is meant to glorify God? The way that you work is meant to glorify God? The way that you write a test at school is meant to glorify God? The way you drive down Highway 19A is meant to glorify God? The way you spend your money is meant to glorify God. Where you go on vacation and what you do on vacation is meant to glorify God. What you read is meant to glorify God. 
It's not meant to be oppressive and constricting. It's meant simply to remind us that there's not any sphere of our life that is not influenced by the reality of God. And so when the psalmist professed, there is nothing I desire on earth but you, I wonder if what went through his mind were things like the kingdom of God. I need to seek the kingdom of God above all else. I wonder if what meant through his mind is the fear of God. I, I need to have God control and influence everything that I do. That, that is my one concern as the audience of one. How can I live in a way that pleases him? So that doesn't mean that you don't desire to get married. What it means is that in your marriage you desire to fear God. And I wonder if what he said also was that I need to glorify God, that my one desire will entail that whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, it will be done to glorify God. I think those are at least just three of the foundations that undergird that phrase. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Oh, may God help us to understand. May we open our hearts and our minds to understand that the reality of God does change everything. Father, I thank you for again this opportunity to wrestle with a phrase that maybe some of us are tired of hearing already. But Father, I'm just coming to see how significant it is, really. And how I need to allow you, if that's even the right way of putting it, but I need to see you in every nook and cranny of my life. And not so that I live in fear and I cower from you, but because that's how you've created me. You have created me to find my rest in you, to find my satisfaction in you. Oh, Father, help us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.